Well, we've been saddened over the last few weeks as this Northern Ireland bill has been amended on its course through Parliament. And we've been really saddened, haven't we, and shocked perhaps to see the inclusion of provisions for abortion up to 28 weeks and for same-sex marriage in our province. For many years we've seen the secularisation increasingly of our society. We've seen the increasing promotion of a secular worldview, an anti-God worldview, and God in many ways has been pushed out of public life. And yet the influence of that poison, if you like, a little bit slower in our own province, hasn't it? Or we felt one step removed and a little bit guarded and protected. And yet this, uh, these amendments and this bill and the course that our government seems to have set us on feels definitive. It's a clear rejection of God's word. What God says about the status of the unborn child made in his image. And of the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman. And it rightly grieves us, saddens us, and concerns us. And yet, yet, we mustn't lose sight of the big picture of history. Psalm 2 is a, a big picture psalm, if you like. It zooms us out from a, a bill or amendments to a bill in Westminster, and it zooms us out to see God on his throne in heaven. It helps us to make sense of the rebellion that we see all around us, the rebellion of the world, and in this psalm to see instead the reign of Christ, and in that reign to see a picture of grace and a picture of judgment. Some of the psalms have introductory titles and they tell us a little bit about the author or the occasion of the psalm. This isn't one of those psalms, but it's a psalm that's referenced in the New Testament in many places. And in Acts 4, as the early church gather for prayer uh, to pray for Peter and John. They quote this psalm and they quote its author as David. But of course, this psalm doesn't really speak of David and his reign. It speaks to us of Christ, David's greater son, and of his reign. And it's Psalm 2 for a reason. It is where it is in the, the book of Psalms. There's order here in this book. There's arrangement. And it's there for a reason. One commentator helpfully reminds us that Psalm 1 is a psalm which helps us as individuals to be sure of where we are going. Blessed is the man who uh, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. And it's a psalm that starts with blessing, and it's a psalm that ends with the word perish. It helps us to be sure of where we are going. But Psalm 2 helps us to be sure, not of where we are going, but of where history is going. And it's all in the hand of God. And it's reigned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 is a psalm of 12 verses. It neatly breaks up for us into four divisions of three verses each. And I want us to think about it in, under four headings. Each begins with an R. It's, they are the rage, the ruler, the reign, and the response. The rage, the ruler, the reign, and the response. So firstly, let's begin by thinking about the rage, the rage of the nations, the rage of the nations. 
David paints for us a very vivid picture of the rage of the nations in verses 1 to 3. He paints a, a picture of world leaders gathered at an international summit. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And here at this summit are many world leaders, government officials, politicians from all the nations of the world. And they're gathered together. And they're angry. Their anger is fierce and visceral. That word for rage, it's a very vivid word. It's a word that's used of horses kicking up their hind legs. And you know what it is uh, for a horse to kick out in anger. And here are the, the nations and the world leaders. And they're angry about something. They're frustrated with someone. But they've come together to, to form an action plan. David says that they're plotting in vain. The word for plot is literally the word to mutter under your breath. And here are the world leaders, the nations of this world, and they are muttering against someone or something. They are so angry that even when they're not talking, there is a silent muttering going on under their breath. Now, what is it? Who is it? What is this about, this anger and rage of the nations? That's how David begins the psalm, isn't it? With the word why. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? What's making the nations of the world so angry? The nations hate God. The nations hate God. You see, this is not a summit to talk about world peace or climate change or the G8. This is an anti-God summit. And at this summit, there's not marching in the streets. There is a firm setting themselves against God and particularly against his anointed king, Jesus. And like the forwards in a rugby team getting ready to huddle together in a scrum, or two teams on a beach getting ready to tug of war. The, the rulers of the nations of this world have set their feet in the ground. And are opposed strongly against God. They hate him. And they hate his king, Jesus. But what is it about God that the nations hate? What is it that has provoked this vehement anger in their lives? Well, they hate his claim over them. They don't want to live under his rules. They don't want to live by what he says. They want to put their own ideas in his place. Living life as God commands, it is restrictive. It's inhibiting. It's unfair. It infringes upon my rights, they say. So David goes on to say in verse 3, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want your reign, God and Jesus. We don't want your rules ruining our lives. Those words for burst and cast away. They are very strong words in the original language. They're used throughout the story of Samson. 
You remember in the story of Samson that the Philistines kept on coming and tying him up. And every time when uh, he would be awoken and they would shout, the Philistines are upon you, he would break those cords just by flexing his muscles, as it were. He was so strong. And that's what the nations of this world are doing. They are seeking to cast God's cords as far away from them as they can. And they're not content, these leaders, with simply not living according to what God says themselves as individuals. No. They want to take everyone who lives in their countries with them. You see, David is reminding us at the outset of this psalm of this truth, that all human beings, when they are born, are born into a particular relationship with God. They are not neutral towards God. They're not indifferent about God. No, they are opposed to God. The poison of sin is in every human heart. And unless God moves and intervenes to remove that poison, to give a new heart, its symptoms will soon appear. Haven't we seen this rage of the nations in our own land at Westminster over these last few weeks. For we have seen the the desperation of our politicians to introduce what they call medical treatment for women in the name of women's rights or of equality. You see, they want to burst apart the bonds of God's law, of what God says about a little baby in a mother's womb being made in his image. We've heard the unrelenting noise of the so-called equal marriage lobby. They want to cast God's cords away, what God says about marriage being between one man and one woman till death do us part. They want to cast those cords far away from them. Perhaps... Perhaps this has shocked us. Certainly it's saddened us, but perhaps it shocked us. But I want to remind you that here in Psalm 2, we are reading words that were written thousands of years ago. This is always the way that mankind has been. Because man hates God. That's why throughout history, there have been many Christian martyrs. It's why the church has been opposed and persecuted. It's why the message of the gospel has often been censured or outright banned. That's why the laws of God have many times been thrown out of governments and constitutions. And ultimately, ultimately this rage of the nations is why when God himself came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ, When the love of God was seen in human form. That the world took him. And crucified him. That's what the early church reflect on. As they are praying to God in Acts chapter 4. As they quote this psalm. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? For truly, they say, in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And here was God incarnate. 
Here was the image of the Father's love. And they nailed it to a cross. And they cried out, crucify him. You see, what's happened at Westminster over these last few weeks is simply a a new symptom of an old problem. And it's the rage of the nations. But the second thing I want you to see is the ruler. The ruler. The ruler of history. The ruler of history. What is God's reaction to this anger and rage to these world leaders who have so set themselves against him. We see it in verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. I don't know if you've got children or or young children or or, or grandchildren perhaps. You know when you're, you're playing with them and you say to them, give me a high five. And they go and they, they give you a high five and you say, no, come on, come on, you can do better than that. Hit me a bit harder. You're just, you're just tickling me. And they, they wind it up and they hit you as hard as they can. And you laugh at them because you're teasing them, aren't you? You're playing with them. You're saying, I just tickled. That didn't hurt me. And what you're saying is, you can try as hard as you like, but you aren't able to hurt me. And as God sits in heaven, as he looks at the nations of this world and their rebellion and their wickedness and their plots and their plans, he laughs in this way at them. You think you can hurt me? You think all your conspiracies can ever subvert my plans for this world? God is often in the Psalms pictured as laughing at the nations. For example, in Psalm 37 and verse 13, where we read there of uh, wicked people plotting against righteous people. And it says that God is laughing at the nations. Or in Psalm 59 and verse 8, where we read of it in an individual context, and David is being pursued by Saul. And David's enemy Saul is trying to kill him. And we read that God is laughing. At the nations. And yet, while God laughs in derision at the nations because they can't touch Him, there is something so inherently awful, something so sinful about rebellion against God that it provokes His deep anger. That's what David goes on to tell us in verse 5. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. You see, raging against God, rebelling against God, opposing God in this way, it's at the very heart of sin. You remember back in in the Garden of Eden when Satan came to Eve, when he tempted her with that fruit, and his his strapline in tempting her was to tell her in verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be in the place of God. You won't need God. You can push God out of your life. You can tell God to get away far from you. And this is at the heart of sin. The the words that are used of God's wrath and fury, they picture God seething burning with deep anger that anyone would dare to oppose him. 
You know, whenever you get frustrated with someone, perhaps in a conversation, and you don't know what to say almost, and you you turn away and you let out a, a deep sigh. I'm just so frustrated. That word for anger is the word that the the Hebrew word for nostrils is based on. And you see, it's picturing God sighing in frustration and anger that the nations would ever try to oppose him in this way. And as God comes to answer them in verse 6, I want you to see the contrast between the rage of the nations in verse 3 and God's response in verse 6. They are standing against him. They've dug their heels in. They are vehemently opposing him. And what is God doing? He is sitting on his throne in heaven. They say, let us burst his bonds apart. Let us cast his cords far away from us. And look at what God says in verse 6. Ask for me. I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. You're scheming. You're plotting. But look what I have done. I have done the decisive thing. I have done the important thing. I have installed my king Jesus. He is ruling. He is reigning over all things in this world. You think that you can somehow subvert my plans. My king is on Zion. My king is on my holy hill. I have installed him. They're plotting to do something. And yet God has done the decisive thing. And brothers and sisters, isn't this wonderfully comforting to us to know that all of history is in the hand of God? There is nothing outside of his control. There is nothing too big Or too small for God. It's not hard to imagine that if our land continues to go in the direction it's going. That in years to come. Perhaps our our pastors or ministers will end up before the courts. And even worse in prison. That was the situation that the early church were finding themselves in. And yet as Peter and John return to that church in Acts chapter 5. They say, we must obey God rather than men. For the church is gathered in prayer, praying, knowing that God is sovereign and on his throne in heaven. So we've seen the rage of the nations. We've seen the ruler of history. But thirdly, I want you to see the reign. The reign of Christ. The reign of Christ. Verse 6 leaves us with a question, at least the first time that we read through this psalm. Who is God's king? Who is it that God has installed on his holy hill of Zion? And verses 7 to 9 provide us with the answer. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God's anointed son. And I want you to notice in verses 7 to 9 three truths about the reign of Christ. Why is it, firstly, that Christ reigns? Look at what God, or what Jesus says in verse 7. For the speaker now changes, and it's Jesus. And we're being given a peek here into a conversation that's taking place in the councils of eternity between Father and Son. 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Why does Jesus reign in this world? Because Jesus is the son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is very God of very God. He is of the same essence and substance as the Father. He is truly God. He reigns because he rules. He is also the ruler of history. And yet these words are are used throughout Scripture. You are my son. They are used throughout Scripture mainly of Jesus in his incarnate life. They're spoken of him, you remember, at his baptism. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Those words are repeated on the Mount of Transfiguration as Peter, James and John see something, just a glimpse of his glory. When Jesus rises again from the dead and he ascends to heaven and he sits on a throne beside his Father in heaven, Paul tells us in Romans 1 and verse 4 that he is raised as the Son of God in power. And we read from Revelation 5, which showed us that wonderful picture of Jesus, the God-man, taking the scroll of God, all the decrees of God, and sitting on a throne, ruling over it beside his Father in heaven. You see, Jesus reigns, yes, because he is the Son of God. But Jesus now reigns as who he now is. He is God and man. He is the God-man, two natures in one person forever. And this is a new authority. This is a new reign that Jesus has been given. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that because of Jesus' obedience even to the point of death, that God has given him a name that is above every name. He has super-exalted Jesus. This is why Jesus reigns. Because he has been obedient even to death. But where does Jesus reign? What verse 8 says? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. This is a worldwide kingdom that this king possesses. don't know if you like maps, looking through atlases, or looking at globes. It's very interesting, I think, isn't it, to, to look and see where different countries are, the countries that we speak of and perhaps we don't always appreciate, or to see the size of countries. Maybe even to see their, their proximity to the equator or the Arctic circles. Or to see what time zone that they're in. Well, Jesus reigns from the Arctic to the Antarctic. He reigns from Greenland to Guyana. He reigns from America to Australia. There is not one blade of grass on this earth that Jesus Christ is not sovereignly reigning over. It is all within his kingship. But how does Jesus reign? God has 
said in verse 6 that he has set his king, that is Jesus, on Zion, my holy hill. Mount Zion is situated in Israel, and it's not really that impressive a mountain, humanly speaking. It stands at 765 meters tall. For reference, that's between the sizes of Slamish near Balamina and Sleeve Donard up in the Mourns. It's a lot closer to Donard than Slamish. But even in Israeli terms, it's a small mountain. It's smaller than the Mount of Olives, for example. It's dwarfed by Mount Sinai or Mount Hermon uh, to the north. And yet throughout the Bible, God paints a picture of the mountain of the Lord. This mountain which starts small and yet is growing to fill all of the earth. But it doesn't yet fill the earth. You see, how does Jesus reign? His reign in this world often looks small and unimpressive, just like Mount Zion. Perhaps we think, how if Jesus is reigning? Can these things happen in Westminster? How if Jesus is on a throne in heaven? Can he allow this kind of thing to happen? Or perhaps in our personal lives and in our situations, we think, well, if Jesus is really in control, how can I be so affected by family difficulties? by problems with my health, by this opposition I'm facing in work. The mountain of the Lord is growing to fill all the earth, but it doesn't yet fill the earth. Jesus has been given all the nations as his heritage, And the word of the gospel is going into those nations. And people are being brought into the kingdom of God. He is breaking hearts that are stony. He is bringing them under his rule. But the great commission is not yet complete. And we live, brothers and sisters, in this time of tension. Why do we face bullying in school? Why do we face persecution as Christians? Why do we face difficulty in family relationships with unbelieving family members? Because we want to live for Christ. Surely, we say, he will do something about it. Surely, if he's on a throne in heaven, he will intervene for us. Well, he will. But not yet. Perhaps we get disheartened at the size of our church as we look around our denomination that we're small and seemingly insignificant. Perhaps we're discouraged by the impact of a particular ministry. And yet Mount Zion is growing and one day it will fill the earth. But not yet. This is the reign of Christ. But fourthly, I want you to see the response. The response of the wise. The response of the wise. And we see this in verses 10 to 12. The psalm ends with this urgent invitation. What is the right response to this king? We see two things about the response in verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Kiss 
the Son, lest he be angry with you. And I want you firstly to notice who it is that that invitation is addressed to. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers. Now, cast your minds, rewind, come back with me to verse 2, to the start of the sermon. Who was it that's gathered at this summit? Who is it that's raging against God and his anointed? Who is it that's set themselves and kicking out their feet against him, muttering angrily against God? It's kings. It's rulers. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. And who is it that's offered this invitation? Who is it that's graciously counseled to be wise? It's kings and it's rulers. You see the grace of God. You see the love of God for sinners. You see the mercy of God that though the world is raging and roaring against him, though the world has set themselves on a collision course with God and want to come at him with utter rebellion, That God holds out grace to the world. Now, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Though he has warned them in verse 9. That Christ will come to dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now is the day of grace. But secondly, I want you to see what it is that this invitation and this response involves. What is a wise response to King Jesus? It's marked by two things. It's marked by submission. And it's marked by service. Verse 12. Kiss the son. In the ancient world, a kiss was a sign of submission or loyalty. When a a king from another country came in and invaded a country and conquered it, the king who had been defeated and conquered would often kiss either the signet ring or the feet of the king who had conquered him. It was an act, a symbol of submission and loyalty, a pledge that you would now serve this new ruler. You remember when... The Lord Jesus in Gethsemane is betrayed by Judas. That Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss. And Jesus turns to him in Luke's account, Luke 22 and 48, and he says to him, Will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Because, you see, these two things, a betrayal and a kiss, stand opposed to one another. One is a sign of loyalty and one, obviously, is a sign of treachery. Kiss the Son. Submit to the Son and serve the Lord with fear. Verse 11. Rejoice with trembling. Turn from your rage and your rebellion. Turn from all your opposition to God and to King Jesus and come now and live a new life of service to this great King. And as we close, I want to ask you, have you responded wisely To King Jesus. Have you responded to this invitation that's held out to you? Have you submitted to the reign of Christ? You must. You must. For one day he is coming again to this earth. 
And though many people today do not recognize him as the king and ruler of this earth, on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the words of this psalm are picked up throughout the book of Revelation. The words of verse 9 that he will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And they look forward to that day, that great day, that awful day. When those who are outside of Christ will be dashed in pieces as it were under his judgment. And I must plead with you tonight. That if you have not submitted to this king. If you are not serving this king today. You must be wise. But you know, the second thing that I want you to notice, if you're a Christian here this evening, is that God extends this invitation to all, to even politicians, to even governors, to even prime ministers and MPs and absent MLAs. And perhaps in all of this furore and in all of this confusion around these bills, we can find ourselves tempted to react in anger and hostility to those who govern our land. Now, we're right to be angry with their decisions. And we're right to do everything that we can to change their decisions. And we're right to bring these matters before God in prayer. But the temptation can be to be rude and dismissive of them. Oh, those useless MLAs up at Stormont. If only they would get back at it. Or to be derisive and speak horribly of them. But what does God say about them? Now, O kings, be wise. And how we must pray that they would be wise. That they would come in submission and service to this great king, that they would kiss the son, lest he be angry with them. It's now less than three months until the 21st of October, by which time, if Stormont is not up and running again, this bill will become law in our province. And then in March 2020, it will be enacted and these things will be provided for and allowed in our province. From our human perspective, this situation looks horrible and hopeless. We wonder how it could ever have got to be like this. But here is a commentary on our land. The nations rage, but the Lord reigns. He has appointed his son Jesus Christ to reign and rule over all the nations of the world. And though there is much in one sense to fear from these things. All of history is in his hands. And so there is nothing to fear. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? He who sits in the heavens laughs. As for me. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill.
Amen. And may God bless his word to our hearts.